Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you have not been with us over the past few weeks, uh, that is okay. Uh, if you have been with us and you just don't pay attention, that's okay. You're loved at Central. But here's what I want. Uh, so one thing I think is uh, really cool to share with you guys is um, if you were to ask me, uh, what is my favorite like type of like passage in Scripture to preach from, I would tell you, Pretty quickly, for me personally, it is Old Testament narrative, right? So Old Testament stories. So if you've been with us, we've been in First Samuel for the past several weeks. Uh, the, the the plan is to be able to hit, uh, obviously not all of, but hit as much as we can of First and Second Samuel here over the next several weeks. Uh, but we are in First Samuel chapter seventeen, and like I said, I like to, I love to share uh, from Old Testament narrative, and part of the reason for that is because I believe that the Old Testament stories um, are some of the best stories to be able to capture and explain really what it is that we believe as far as the gospel, right? If you read in the Old Testament, you see that Paul, there's, the Apostle Paul, there's many instances where it says that he would reason from the scriptures, he would reason from the Old Testament to explain to people how Jesus was the Messiah, right? And, and, and how, what he would do is he would go to Old Testament passages that show how they pointed ultimately to Jesus. And we know that Jesus says, he says that, uh, that the law and the prophets are what they, that they're written about him, that they're speaking about him. And, and what I want to challenge you with, uh, this morning is, the, or not this morning, hey, tonight is the idea that these, all these stories that you read about in the Old Testament are ultimately pointing to a greater reality. They're ultimately pointing to Jesus, ultimately pointing to the gospel. And when you think of Old Testament stories, they're kind of, are some natural ones that come to mind, right? There's, there's Jonah and the fish, right? There's Noah and the ark. There's these, you know, Joshua and the battle of Jericho. There's Moses and the people of Israel and, and the splitting of the Red Sea. And, and there's story after story after story. And of those stories, probably one of the most iconic, if you ask, you can ask Christian, non-Christian, people who've grown up in church, people who've probably never even stepped, in, stepped foot in a church, and you ask them, what is 1 Samuel 17? They would not know. But if you ask them, what is the story of David and Goliath? They have probably heard it at some point. And we have a lot that we're going to get into tonight. We're going to, we have a lot that we're going to kind of, we're going to really seek to dive into and try to understand in this passage. So I'm going to try not to delay anymore. I'm going to try to just dive right into it, okay? So if you would, I encourage you, if you would stand with me out of, as we honor the Word of God uh, tonight as we read. We're going to read, be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot which belongs to Judah and encamped between Sukkot and Ezekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of, the ba uh, in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the, co of the coat was about 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, or are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, as we seek to hear from you tonight, Father, I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are receptive to your word, Father. We thank you. We praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, go ahead and grab a seat. So there's a few things we're going to see tonight. First thing I want you to see is a dangerous dilemma. A dangerous dilemma. First, verses 1 through 11 we just read, it kind of sets the stage, right? So Israel is going to battle against the Philistines in a place called the Valley of Elah. I've had the chance to actually stand in the Valley of Elah. It's pretty amazing, right, when you, when you read these stories and then you kind of go and you stand in the place where these stories take place. And what you have is you have the Philistines on one side, right, on the, on, on the, on the mountain on this side, and then there's a valley. And then on the other side, you have the people of Israel. And we're right here in the very first section here. We are introduced to one of the most intimidating and infamous people in all of the Bible, Goliath, right? There's a lot of people, there's a lot of parents who name their kids Bible names, you know? But you don't see a whole lot of kids named Goliath walking around, right? Goliath is a mountain of a man. He was a huge man. Goliath is described in very specific detail, right? It's very interesting that, that the author goes to very specific painstaking time to go through all the details here, right? It talks about his size, the weight of his armor and his weapons, right? It's all explained in, in great depth. And clearly, the author has a specific purpose. The author is really trying to get you and I to understand the significance of the obstacle that Goliath was, right? The, the idea of his height, six cubits in a span, if, 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 inter- if, if taken literally in, here in 1 Samuel, that puts his height anywhere from 8 foot 5 to 9 foot 2. Now, there's some, there's some scholars who will, who will kind of argue uh, different things here. Like the Hebrew kind of translates a little awkwardly. But some people will say that perhaps that the, this size is including the, his total appearance, which is including the height of his spear. You could also read, uh, there's Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian. He, he, uh, him, and he says this in other older manuscripts like the Septuagint, which is, which is important for you to kind of check out at some point in your life, right? Uh, all these different, some of these uh, things put him at a height at about seven feet tall. But regardless, regardless of the specifics, here, one thing is very, very clear is that Goliath was very, very, very big. He was a huge man. He was not to be taken lightly. Regardless of how tall he was, how strong he was, we see that it's clearly larger than anyone that Israel had, larger than anyone that the Philistines had, right? His chain mail, if, when we take the uh, kind of measurements here, weighed about 150 pounds on its own. The tip of his spear weighed somewhere between 12 to 26 pounds, no doubt this is an intimidating figure, and now he stands before Israel. And he issues a simple challenge. He issues a simple challenge. He says this, send a representative from Israel, send a representative from amongst you to come and fight me. And if he beats me, we will serve you. But if I beat him, you serve us. And then he proceeds to take things to another level as the passage will later go on and say that that he goes on to defy Israel and the God of Israel. And here, here's, here's where we have the problem, right? That there, there's no one in Israel's camp 
who can defeat Goliath. Nobody. There's no one who can even compare to Goliath. We'll see later on. We'll Saul. We'll talk about that. This Goliath was a warrior since his youth. He has grown up killing people. This is what Goliath does. There is no one in Israel who could possibly stand against Goliath. And they're all struck with fear. We see this in verse 11. They're all struck with fear. Not to mention the fact that the Philistines essentially controlled all of the production of swords and ironworking at this time. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, do you remember what it says? Where it talks about it, it says that there was no blacksmith in all of Israel. That the Philistines controlled the making of iron, the making of swords, all of these different things. So the Israelites, in order to have their farming equipment sharpened, would have to go to the Philistines to have them sharpen it for them. So not only are they going up against a man who is twice their size, but they're also going up against him very likely uh, without any access to normal weapons. The only people who are uh, mentioned or recorded having swords at the, uh, here in 1 Samuel are Saul and his son Jonathan. So essentially, Israel is doomed. They're helpless. There's nothing that they can do. As they're they're helplessly, helplessly sitting there as they watch their enemy walk out and openly mock them with challenge after challenge. And essentially, if you're the people of Israel, you're already dead. You're already dead. There's nothing you can do. But let's take a step back. Like, how do we even get here in the first place? Right, how do we even get to this situation in the first place if you're the people of Israel? Well, like where did Goliath come from? Now, obviously, we know that Goliath of Gath, that we see that he is a Philistine, but let's kind of go even bigger scale, right? Like, how did the Phil- why are the Philistines in Israel in the first place? It's a great question. If you go back, or if you go back to the books of Joshua and Judges, you'll see that God gave specific instructions to the people of Israel. He gave those very specific instructions to Joshua and the people of Israel when they went into the promised land. And he said, what? To drive them out. Drive them all out. Do not leave them. Do not make deals with them. Do not make covenants with them. Drive them all out of the land. And what does Israel do? In classic Israel fashion, they drive most of the people out. And when they get to the last few people groups, what they decide to do is, hey, we're going to, let's take them and let's make them our servants. Let's strike a deal with them and say, hey, we won't kill you if you become our servants. And that's what they choose to do. And ultimately, if you go to Judges chapter 2, we see God's response. What does God say to them? He says this. He goes, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And what do we see? That ultimately, throughout Israel's history, especially up to this point, the Philistines in particular have been a major problem for the people of Israel. If you read in the book of Judges, you see the Philistines show up several times. We see in the story of Samson. Already, over the past several weeks, we've seen the, the Philistines be a major problem for Israel. But here's the thing. Based off what we've read, based off what we understand, overarching theme and narrative of the Old Testament, is who is to blame for the Philistines being in Israel? Israel is. Israel. They are to blame for this. It was Israel's sin that led to the judgment that they were experiencing right now. And here's what I want you to understand. Here's the whole reason I went through all of that, is understand this, is that sin is never free. Sin is never free. 
sin always has a cost. And you may think, and I want to be very clear, it doesn't matter how big or how small, you may think that you are getting away with it, but I can assure you that the sin that you are, maybe whatever you're struggling with or the sin that you're openly partaking in right now, I want you to understand that it is going to ultimately be destructive to you, destructive to people around you, and it will be destructive to people who come after you. See, the world that we live in is broken. You can look at the news or social media and see that, right? That we live in a broken world, and the reason the world is broken is because of the brokenness of the sinful people that live in it, including you and me. See, somewhere down the line, we got it mixed up. See, somewhere down the line, we got it mixed up, where we, we, we thought that righteousness is costly and sinfulness is free. I want you to know that righteousness, of course, is, it is costly to an extent, but I want you to know that sin is always more costly than you think. I can tell you based on the authority of the word of God, the experience of my own life, and the experience of lives of people that I know, that sin will always cost you more than you are willing to pay. Let me give you an example. I suffer from something that I'm sure many of you suffer from, and it's this, is that I'm a sucker for convenience. I'm a sucker for convenience. I will willingly pay more for something if it's more convenient. And there's no better example of this in my life personally than DoorDash. You guys know what DoorDash is? Okay. So my people, right? DoorDash, I, I, I try not to use it. I truly do. I try not to use it. And I've gotten a lot better. I've gotten a lot better. I don't remember the last time I've used it, to be honest with you, which is, <laughs> which is very freeing for me to say. But every once in a while, I have a moment of weakness. I have a moment of weakness. I'm like, you know what would be great? So if I could just DoorDash something right now. And here's the main problem. Here's the main problem with DoorDash that I've experienced. And if anybody in here, your parent works for DoorDash or whatever, God bless them. DoorDash is a good service, okay, for people who have a lot of money, all right? But here's my problem is that I'll look at something. I'll be okay, like $15 for something. And that's, you know, that's like... You know, we're not talking like Taco Bell or McDonald's, okay? Like $15, we're talking like Chick-fil-A level, right? Like $15, I'm like, okay, that's fine, right? $15, I can make that work. It's good. And then I keep going, and then it's like, okay, well, now there's a delivery fee. Okay, well, the delivery fee, all right, $18, uh, you know, that's fine. And then there's the driver tip. Now we're up to about $21, and then when you get to the final payment, there's extra fees and things that are worked in there to now a fast food meal that originally would be $15 has now worked its way up all the way to $30. And I have to remind myself, I have to remind myself, no matter how hungry or lazy I feel in that moment, that no matter how cheap this food may cost in reality, that when I go through DoorDash, it is always going to be more expensive than I want to pay. It doesn't show it right off the bat. It's never on their advertisements, but I know deep down it is always going to cost more. And I will tell you that the sin is very similar, but not only that, it is far more costly. It's far more costly. And there's no greater lie that you can believe than to think that you can sin for free. I want you to think about this. If Israel was obedient in the book of Joshua, there would be no Goliath in the book of Samuel. See that? 
that if they were obedient in the book of Joshua, there would be no Goliath in the book of Samuel. So what we see is that Goliath is not just a terrifying figure. Goliath is the result of their sin. And they have to face it. It stands before them. There's no getting around it. There's no escaping it. It's right there. So we see a dangerous dilemma. The second thing we see is a desperate king. Now verse 11 ends with something that is very important for us to see. It's right. It says, Saul was terrified. Now for those of you, if you haven't been with us, Saul is the king of Israel. And he's terrified. Now up to this point, remember that Saul was the warrior king, right? That was his thing. Fighting in battle and war, that was Saul's like thing that made him the king that the people wanted. He was known for his prowess in battle, and if there was anyone who should stand up for Israel in this moment, it was Saul. When, when Goliath comes out and says, send me someone to fight, there's only one person whose job that was, Saul. In fact, I want you to think back to when Israel demanded a king. If you remember 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they demanded a king. They went to Samuel and they said, give us a king. Do you remember why, what they wanted that king to do? They wanted to be like the nations around them. And they wanted a king who would fight their battles for them. Do you remember this? Well, ding, ding, ding. Now's the time. Now's the moment. This is the moment where what they wanted should come to fruition. You see, you can slice it a million different ways, but ultimately this giant obstacle that was before Saul ultimately fell on his shoulders, and he was terrified. He couldn't avoid it. He couldn't run from it. And why was he terrified? Because he knew that there was nothing he could do about it. He knew that he couldn't defeat Goliath. And you see, he knew the reality of Goliath was impossible to overcome, and all he could do was shake and fear. Goliath was Saul's responsibility, but Saul couldn't do what it took to defeat him. And I want you to understand something. Whenever you hear this story taught, the goal is not for you to see how do you defeat your Goliath. That is not what this story is about. Because the whole point of the story is that you can't defeat Goliath. You can't. You can't defeat Goliath. The, the Goliath was the result of Israel's sin. It falls on Saul's shoulders to deal with it, and he can't deal with it. And this is the situation that all of us find ourselves in. Every single person in this room, Romans 6.23, what does it say? For the wages of sin is death. Think back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and they're removed from the Garden of Eden, what was it that blocked their way back to the tree of life? So there was a, a sword, right? A flaming sword that guarded their way from being able to get back to the tree of life. Why is it? Well, if you see in the Bible, the sword and fire are constant symbols of God's judgment. So what do we see? Is that what blocked Adam and Eve from eternal life was the judgment of God because of their sin. And the same thing is what I'm trying to get across to you right now. See, Goliath is not your relationship problems. Goliath is not, you know, your, your, your low self-esteem. Goliath is not your struggle in school. Goliath is your sin. And you have to deal with it. No one in this room is exempt 
No one in this room can say, I don't have a Goliath. That's not true. See, the problem that you and I have is that we have a sin problem. We have sinned against a holy God, and the result of this rebellion is that we lay like, like Saul. We lay in shambles, broken and shaking, as the reality of our sin calls out to us every single day, reminding us of our imperfections, reminding us of our past, reminding us of the thing that we did yesterday. See, there's times where I know there are people who I've spoken to and what keeps them from church is the fact that they can't get past what they did yesterday. Right? Goliath walks out. Every morning when they wake up, Goliath stands before them. And they know there's nothing they can do about it. So all they do is sit in fear. And like Saul, we know we can't overcome it. And ultimately, we just view ourselves as we're already dead. You see, the goal of all world religions... All world religions, apart from other than Christianity, what they do seek to do is to soothe the conscience of men and women that know that they are fallen, that know that they are broken. They seek to be, people. They seek to better themselves through things like enlightenment or moral living, or seeking to keep the five pillars. And, and ultimately, you're left on your own to seek to slay Goliath by your good life. I want you to know that that's not the gospel. That's not what we come in here and we celebrate every week. That's not what it's about. See, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that you can never slay Goliath. And you never will be able to slay Goliath on your own. And you know what? I believe that many people know this. You know this. If you're in this room and, you, and, and the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin and you're face to face with the reality of your sinfulness and there's nothing you can do and you know there's nothing you can do. You know there's no amount of good works you can do. There's, nothing, there's no amount of Bible reading that you can do. There's no amount of prayer you can do. There's no amount of coming to church that you can do. So what do we do? Oftentimes we try to keep ourselves busy. Or we surround ourselves with people who will value what the world values and, and will think that that will soothe our conscience because if I'm good at the things that don't matter, it'll make me feel better about the fact that I'm not good with the things that do matter. Or we do this. We compare ourselves by ourselves. And here's what I mean by that. See, notice, it didn't matter if Saul was stronger than the rest of the Israelites. It mattered if he was stronger than Goliath. You see that? See, what do we know about Saul? Is that Saul was actually, he was, the Bible tells us he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel. He was the giant of Israel. But it didn't matter how good he was compared to Israel because ultimately it wasn't against Israel that he had to go up against. It was against Goliath. And here's the thing I want you guys to understand. So many people, when they look at their life, they try to justify themselves. They say, well, I'm no different than this person or that person. Have you ever shared the gospel with people and you hear people say this? And you talk about the fact, well, yeah, okay, I'm not perfect, but I haven't like, I'm not like Hitler or anything. I've never killed anybody. I've never done this. I've never done that. Or maybe you're in the room right now and you're like, I don't look like anybody else that's different in this room. See, I know, I know this, right? I know I see the best version of you, right? 
Nobody's like, everybody, when you see the, the pastor, and you're like, oh. But some of you are like, hey, I know what so-and-so did. But here's the thing. You're not compared to so-and-so. It doesn't matter what you look like compared to this person or that person. It matters what you look like compared to the Holy Son of God, Jesus. And all of us fall short of that. And that is the problem. Right? James 2, 10 and 11 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in any one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery has also said do not commit murder. Saul is hopeless. Now there's a small detail in this passage that we can oftentimes forget. It's verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. I don't know why, but like whenever I think of like when I was a kid and I would hear this story and it was like put on the felt board, you know. What I'm, do you guys know what felt board is? All right, all right, all right. I'm not, like, I'm not that much older than you, okay. All right, there's like the felt board and, and I always thought that this happened in like one day, right? And over the span of 40 days, Goliath would wake up in the morning, go out, and just, just dump on Israel all day. For 40 days, Goliath would come out every morning and every evening and call out to Israel. He would challenge them, and the people of Israel would simply just sit there and take it because they knew that there was nothing else that they could do about it. Interesting that the, there's the number 40 right here, right? So if, if you've read your Bible long enough, you've probably seen that there's certain numbers that come up a lot, and the number 40 has a lot of significance in the Bible, right? There's numbers like 3, 7, 12, 40, stuff like that. And in each instance, like, a lot of the time, the, the, those numbers are... They're, they're very significant, right? The, the number 40 is mentioned approximately 146 times in the Bible. Yeah, what? Right? 146 times in the Bible. The symbolism of the number 40, oftentimes when you see 40, it symbolizes a period of testing and trial. Let me give you a few examples. Jesus was tested in the wilderness for how long? 40 days. The security of the ark, right, when it was raining, it was flooding the earth, how long did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights. Israel's faith was tested in the wilderness when they wandered the wilderness for how long? 40 years. Their, test, their, their faithfulness was also tested when Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai for how long? 40 days. And Goliath would go out and mock Israel for how long? 40 days. So here's the question. What is being tested here? What's being tested? Is it, now, is it, what's being is it Israel's strength? No, because they don't really do anything. Was it their patience? I, I don't think so. What, what was being tested in this instance? What, what, what I believe, what I, what I think is pretty clear here, is what's being tested here is the object of their faith. They had placed their faith in Saul, this king who would fight their battles for them. And now that it is being tested, it is being found that it does not work. Their faith in Saul is proving to be pointless. You see, whenever you and I place our faith in people or things, they will eventually be put to the test. They will eventually be put to the test. And you will find that whatever you're trusting in, if it's not Christ, if it's not Jesus, it will fail you. And I don't care how good it is. You can put your faith and your trust in me, and I will promise you at some point I will fail you. 
Your parents will fail you. Your friends will fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Ultimately, Israel has placed their faith in Saul, and over the course of 40 days, the object of their faith had proven that he could not bear the weight that they hoped that he could. Likewise, you'll find that no matter what you place your faith in, if it's not Jesus, it cannot save you from your sins, and it will ultimately let you down. Saul is desperate. If you skip to verses 24 and 25, what do we see is that ultimately Saul is so desperate that he starts to offer rewards for anyone who will just step up and do it. Verse 24, what does it say? It says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. What's Saul doing? Saul is looking to anyone and anything to relieve him of the pressure that he has. Why? Because he knows he can't do it. And this is what people do, right? Is that when they come face to face with the reality of the fact that they are not perfect, they seek anything and everything to try and fix it. They seek relationships. They seek drugs. They seek friends. They seek money. They seek sports. And it never fixes it. It never brings them wholeness. See, so much, so like so much of what Saul is offering here, he's offering it ultimately because he's desperate. I want you to know that it is in his it is because of his desperation that he ultimately turns to David. I want you to know that like. It is not bad to be desperate. It's good to be desperate. And I would argue that you can't really have a saving faith in Jesus until you get to the point where you're desperate. Where you realize there's nothing that you can do to make you right before God. And you're desperate for what can. So we see... We've seen the first two things, right? We've seen a dangerous dilemma. The second thing we've seen is a desperate king. The third thing is a surprising savior. Now we're introduced to David. Kind of a big deal, right? David is a, is a major person in the Old Testament. And we're actually introduced to David back in verse 12, right? We kind of see that he's going back and forth between his father. I'm kind of getting highlights here because there's like 50-something verses in chapter 17. I'm trying to really fly through here, right? But ultimately, he's going back and forth between his father and the battlefield. And why is he with his father? It's because he's watching the sheep, right? We saw this last week that David is a shepherd. He takes care of the sheep. And here, David is sent by his father. He's sent to the battlefield because his brothers are there. And he's sent with some food and some supplies. Check on his brothers. Take care of them. Here we see that David, is, he, he's doing this. He goes to do what he's told to do. Now, I want to be very clear about something. This is, this is very important. I want everybody to kind of look at me for a moment. When we're reading the Old Testament, we come to these stories, right? The, these stories and these people and these events that happen in history. There is a sense in which we, we see these people do these things, and, and we're like, okay, like, there is a lot of good value in what they do, and we want to be, oh, hey, okay, like, like, all right, so, like, David did this. Like, there's aspects that I want to be like David in this instance, right? And that's good. That's, 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 that's a good thing to do. But it's important for us to know that that is not the main point of those stories, right? For instance, the main point of the story of David and Goliath is not be like David. 
It's ultimately the fact that you can't be like David, that you're like Saul, but Jesus is like David, right? That Jesus is the greater David. However, there are good points that we see in David that I think we would, we would, we should, we would do well to learn from, right? We, do, we would do well to learn from. So here's a few things that I want to see. First thing is that David has a spiritual perspective that determines his physical one. All right, David has a spiritual perspective that determines his physical one. Verses 26 and 27. David comes out. He hears Goliath talking all this garbage. And what does he say? And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who, comes, who kills him. What do we see? Is that, what is David concerned about? David sees a man who is defying the armies of God, who has no right to do so. And he's like, yo, that's not right. It's not, he, he doesn't see the mountain of a man. He doesn't see the armor. He doesn't see the spear. What does he see? He sees a spiritual problem. And what you find is that because he has a spiritual perspective, his physical perspective is not as overwhelming. See, upon arriving to the battle, David is struck by the audacity of Goliath to openly speak about God and his people the way that he is. See, David, David saw Goliath in a spiritual sense and not simply in a physical one. And notice what David, what was David's concern? David's concern was the reproach against God. Was God getting glory? Was God, it was, it was God. It wasn't Israel. It wasn't him. He had the right focus. He had the right perspective. The second thing I want you to see about David was that he knew that his past was for a purpose, right? So ultimately, David is brought before Saul. He's brought before Saul. Verse 32, it says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David tells Saul, I got you. It's important to know that David is still a boy at this point. Still a little kid. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, I want you to hear this, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if it arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. First of all, Guts that I do not have. But what is it that gave him confidence? Ultimately, what does he, he rely on? He goes, look, I've been here before, man. I've been, look, look, I, I, I watch after sheep. I take care of sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear would come after the sheep, I would grab it. I would kill it. And the God who defended me in the past will defend me in the future. And what is this? Is that David did not see his past of keeping sheep as a problem. Is that he embraced it. And so many of our problems in life are because we despise the season that we're currently in because we wish that we were in a different one. 
But I want you to know something, that if you aren't embracing the season you're in now, you will not be ready for the season that God brings you into in the future. David knew that his past was for a purpose. And third thing we see is that David did not try to be something he wasn't. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David was strapped with his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. What do you see is ultimately Saul tries to give David his armor, and armor, and David's like, look, this doesn't fit. I can't go in this. And I want you to know that there are going to be many times when you feel like in order to serve God, you have to fit into someone else's armor. I want you guys to know something. Hey, guys, like, like don't talk right now. For just, just lean in for just a couple more minutes. Whenever I tell you, man, like God wants to do amazing things in your life and, 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 and God's calling you to serve him and different things. What, a lot of times is that people look at like me or Pastor Ethan or others and say, look, I can't get on a stage and do that. Here's the thing, man. Don't try to put my armor on to do what God has called you to do. You see what I'm trying to say? David was not going to try and be Saul. He was going to be David. You have to understand that when God has called you to do something, if he wanted someone else to do it, he would have had them do it. I'll be honest with you guys, right? I have, a, I have kind of like a certain way of preaching. I know this. I know I can be long-winded. I know I can yell a lot. And there was a time in my life where I was really insecure about it. I would try to not, and I would, uh, uh, uh. but you know what I had to get to a point of, and I, was, I listened to preachers that I really respected and liked, and, and, and it's like, you know what I had to understand is like, look, if God wanted that pastor to preach to this group of people, he would have him do it. This doesn't mean that I just, that I grow complacent, but I should seek to continue to grow, but understand this is don't try to be someone you are not. God has uniquely gifted you to do what he has called you to do. Embrace it. Embrace it. And the last thing is, David was confident in God and not in himself. As we continue on in the story, we kind of get to the moment of truth. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. Now, I don't know who would be more nervous. David or like the thousands of Israelites who are watching this happen. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Man. Like, I get hyped when I read that. But where was his confidence? He's walking up with a slingshot. Now, don't get me wrong. These slingshots are no joke. These, these, these slingshots, it's recorded that you can whip a, a stone up to 70 miles an hour, and it can, you can hit a target over 650 feet away. I mean, he's not going out there with a Fisher-Price thing. But it's still a slingshot. Who, where is his confidence? Where is his trust? He doesn't go up to Saul and say, y'all, I've been practicing with this thing. You better watch out. What does he do? He goes to Goliath. He stands before him, and he trusts in God. He knew that God would not abandon him. God would not bring him this far just to leave him. He knew ultimately that God would get the glory and God would get the victory. And when God is for you, who can be against you? Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. I skipped a verse. Let me go back. My bad. I skipped like the verse. My fault, my fault, my fault, my fault. All right, verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and, ki and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So, so now this is great, right? This is great. This is awesome. But remember what I told you. There's a lot of good points here. But we should never sacrifice a good point for the main point. Right? What's the main point? The main point is this. Is that David stepped up and defeated the enemy that Saul couldn't. David defeated the enemy that Saul could not defeat. You see, the goal isn't that we should walk away and say, be more like David. The goal is that we should walk away and say, thank you for Jesus. Because the Goliath of my sin stands before me every single day, but I can wake up with confidence, I can walk around with joy, knowing that that Goliath was slain by Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't have to worry about my past. I don't have to worry about my sin and my shame and my mistakes. Why? Because it's under the blood of Jesus. And Jesus defeated my sin when I couldn't. That is the point of David and Goliath. It's not that you are David. It's that you are Saul and Jesus is David. 
See, when you are hopeless, Jesus defeated your sin. But how did he do it? Not with five smooth stones, but with three rugged nails and an old splintered cross. And while on that cross, he took the full wrath of God for your sins and for my sins. And in so doing, he defeated our Goliath. The punishment that you and I could not bear, he took on himself. And I just want to read a few verses from Romans for you. One, because I love the book of Romans. Two, because I know it makes Corbin happy when I do it. Romans 5, 6 and 8. I want you to read this with the story that we just went through in your mind. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, please understand this. If Goliath is dead, what is holding you back? If your biggest problem, your sin, was taken care of by Jesus, there is nothing that holds you back. Paul is saying here, where's Goliath? If Jesus defeated your sin, then the victory is for you. Goliath is dead. Notice that when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Know that for us, our champion is alive. Jesus is just as alive today as he was when he walked out of the tomb 2,000 years ago. And see, for some of you, you look across that valley and all you see is Goliath. Right? Some of you, when you, when you, when you, when you hear me talk about this or you think about your past or you think about God and all, all you can think about is your sin or the mistakes of your past or, or whatever it may be, I want you to know that man, Jesus has defeated Goliath. See, those things that you've done, the things that, that, that hold you back from trusting in Jesus, I'll tell you that Jesus has taken care of those things. Those are under the blood of Jesus. Don't try and fight Goliath when Goliath has been defeated. Don't say, you know what, I'll try and earn being good with God. No, you can't. I know for a fact the chances of every single student in this room having a saving relationship with Jesus are low. Which means it is very, very likely that there are people in this room hearing my voice right now that do not know Jesus. And I want you to know that that invitation 
is open to you. To know that your sin is, can be forgiven. That Goliath is defeated. And that you can walk with confidence and assurance, not in yourself, but in what Jesus has done for you.